Hey there, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time once again to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your lug nuts. It's time for an overall. you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet earth the magic of technology allows for that to happen it's just uh maybe just because i grew up in a certain uh era where there was only four channels on the television five if you count uhf on with the little dial on the side of your tv that i find all this stuff so amazing to this day i mean it's nothing new right but uh, the internet and and uh, the far reaches of the world that there are people listening in Australia and Ireland and New Zealand and Canada and all, uh, all points in between, it's fascinating to me. Anyway, I got to get over that or maybe not. Maybe it's good that I stay like that because it's just a, every time I come in here and turn this microphone on, for the 99% of it, I don't have any idea what I'm talking about, quite frankly. But that 1% to be able to do this and just sit back here and go, here's what I got for you this morning. And for the most part, if not all parts, a lot of what comes out of my mouth, I need to hear myself. So let's just be real clear on that. You know, I, I don't ever want to get on here and say, I know more than anybody listening, because that's not the case. I'm always first chair student and trumpet at the same time, because so much goes on in the world that I can't process that I found that doing this podcast weekly helps me do that a little bit. Even if I'm just talking to myself in my studio right now, knowing that all of you are listening around the world, it's... Uh, it's kind of like an interesting um, synergistic partnership, is it not? So I'll be talking about something and inevitably later this week, I'll get an email or a Facebook message that says, you said exactly what I needed to hear. How's that possible? I'm not a savant. I can't see the future. I've had some really weird shit happen, but I wouldn't put myself in a category of a seer, right? I don't know. And it's somebody I've never heard of or never met in person. And I'm saying something or relating an experience that rings true with them. So that reminds me that, you know, the human family is connected on a lot of different levels. And my attempt every week is to do exactly what I said when I opened the show, find the obvious buried in the absurd, if at all possible, because that which is obvious often gets run over by the absurdities of life. And then it gets piled on top and it's hard to get it out. That's why digging deep in some of this stuff, I think, at least for a little bit uh, during the week, helps alleviate a lot of the pressure that builds up uh, just this morning, which was an unusual morning for me, I slept in. I never sleep late. I mean, I can't. The, and to me, late is seven o'clock, just for the record. And this morning, I was I slept till seven thirty. It was like what? And I also know, you know, my body has its own regulatory system, and if I need sleep, it's going to keep me sleeping. And last night was one of those nights. But I woke up and happened to turn the TV on for a few minutes. So I was drinking coffee, which I never do during the week. I mean, I drink coffee during the week. I never turn the TV on during the week. But this morning, it was four or five, six news stories right out of the gate that were the worst things going on. People breaking in, stealing luxury cars. Somebody got shot in a laundromat. I mean, it was just this ongoing slog of negativity that just hit me like a wall. I'm like, that's enough of that. That's enough of that. Because there's zero with a lot of zeros after that zero that I can do about that stuff. There really isn't. And yet it's in, it inundates our lives, insisting and begging for our attention and it's like being in a cage and getting poked at all the time. And you have no recourse. 
And I think it, it builds up over time to a point where we become numb to so much that should be important to some greater or lesser degree. And we become less connected to the reality of our lives because this other stuff's kind of interfering. It's like just having the channel on the radio off a little bit and you hear that shh. It's like this constant white noise in the back of our head. It never ends. There's always something that's begging our attention that we can do nothing about. And you sit, we sit there and this stuff just pounds at us. And it's just like, it's like self-induced, uh, you know, insanity. And, and so I, I look at this exercise every week that I do is an opportunity for me to offset that a little bit for myself and for anybody listening and to ask some questions and see if we can't figure some things out because we get so wrapped up. It's like string getting wrapped tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter, you know, on a spool until it snaps. And there is more than enough evidence on a second by second basis that there's a lot of shit going on in the world. This is the lowest levels of humanity. We have all the evidence of that. So there's not as much evidence shown to us of the upside of all this, of being alive and what it's like to, you know, to be able to part of the human family that's working. And there's a couple sites out there like goodnewsnetwork.org. Uh, if you need to take a break from stuff, go look over there and see what they report on. And it's all the stuff that is working and the amazing things that happen. And so there's this constant juxtaposition going on and we get stuck in the middle of all this stuff. And again, I don't think there's anything more disempowering than being constantly bombarded with stuff you can't do a thing about. It just raises your blood pressure. On the other side of the coin, when you are connected to things that maybe empower you, it offsets that stuff and you start to look at it less and less. So someone like me who is not a news junkie and kind of could care less because I've seen all this before. I'm 64 years old. I've seen all these commercials a bajillion times. I don't need to see them again. I've seen the same politicians with different faces saying the same things at a different time again. There's nothing new here. Zero is new over and all that shit. The landfill of crap that humans dredge up is not new. It's presented in many different ways and different opinions and stuff, but that's nothing new there. And so finding that lane that we can get into that gets us out of that stuff, whether it's a book you read or maybe a podcast like this that you listen to or music, uh, those things are vitally important. And the older I get and the more the invasive the crap gets, the more I seek myself out to find these ways. I'll do little things like build a model. You know, I'm 64, as I said. I've been building models on and off most of my life. And the, I do it for a couple of reasons. One is it totally stops my brain from working on audio projects, which is about 80% of what I do for my work is audio. And then there's another, you know, 10, 15% in print. So I'm working with my fingers doing stuff. That's one whole part of my brain that's engaged in those things. But when I take out, like I'm getting ready to build Dracula, by the way. Uh, but the last one I did was was either Godzilla or Frankenstein. They're both over here. And I do it for a couple of reasons. One is it totally engages a different part of my brain that was about 12 years old. And I liked how things were at 12 because my view of the world was very, very small at that time. And it, all of us can relate to that. You know, if you think about it, all the shit that's been going on has been going on since there's been six of us on the planet, if not more or less. And... It's as our view of the world expands, as the world gets more and more invasive in our lives, so does the stress and all the, all the stuff that goes along with that. So when I was 12 years old, I didn't know a hell of a lot what was going on in the world. And there are days I need that. 
And so whether it was Wolfman or Godzilla, I'm thinking it was Godzilla. Wolfman was done first. So as I'm working on this Godzilla model, I'm back to being 12 for at least 45 minutes to an hour over a five-day period. I'm not engaged in the stuff that I work on. I'm not engaged with the world outside, but it gives that part of my brain and mind a chance to take a break. So I have a friend of mine who I went to grammar school with, and uh, his name's John as well, but we called him Little Johnny because he's, he's a smaller fella. And we found each other again on Facebook all these decades later, and he's a model guy too. And I crack up because here's these two 60-somethings that we're well into our you know early fourth quarter of life going back and forth on Facebook messages, sending pictures of models we built like we did if we were 12. It is so vitally important to find something that keeps you 12, I think, at least for a little bit of the day. That way, when the stuff comes rolling in, as it always does, it sneaks in, it seeps up, comes up through the sewers, uh, you have something to push back against. And I think it's just really, really important to, uh, to have something, whether it's a hobby or a, an out or an anchor that keeps you from floating away with all the garbage that uh, we can't do a thing about. That's not what this show is about today. I've already wasted about 10 minutes of ranting and raving on that, so I hope that had some value for you. It did for me. And I'm getting ready to build Dracula next, as I said. Can't wait to start on that. Anyway, Dracula. <laughs> um, my whole life has been uh, in trying to understand the concept of prayer. Growing up as a kid, baptized as a Catholic, never went to Catholic church, as I really recall. It's just something they did back in the day. I, I think I made it for about a week at St. Ed's because I liked the way the boys' ties looked, and that didn't last too long, and I ended up in public school. Uh, but I had a great influence at the Presbyterian Church growing up, and I went to the church to play basketball. And then I ended up going to the church on Sundays and got part of the youth group and things. And it was very laid back. There was It was not the rigid, um, sort of guilt-ridden Catholic uh, overtones that uh, I saw my friends working around and with and through. Uh, and this was very different. And the, the minister, the Presbyterian minister, was Reverend Bob G. Sills. He was a larger-than-life character to me. Uh, much like Teddy Roosevelt, he had kind of the same mustache and same kind of teeth and little glasses and a robust fellow. Uh, this is a guy who wore powder blue leisure suits under his robes on Sunday with white shoes. Gotta love a guy like that. And so that was like my first and lasting uh, impression of any sort of formalized religion and the concept of prayer that would go along with that. And I don't remember much of what Bob G said, but I remember how he delivered his sermons and messages. Very powerful guy, very powerful speaker. I, I can remember sitting in rapt attention in the upper deck in the back of the Irving Park Presbyterian Church on Christmas Eve, listening to him talk about, you know, all things around uh, Christmas and, and how important it was to be good to each other. All those, all those tones and, and tenors that we bring along with that season. And the, the place was lit up beautifully and it was just a wonderful memory. And, uh, Bob G. left the church at some point, probably uh, when I was in high school, and you know that was the end of that. And then I ran into him many, many years later. I found him at a little church in, near Rockford, Illinois, and I wanted to see him again. And I, and I made my way over there, and I sat in the back row, and I thought, there's no way these guys remember me. I mean, I hadn't seen him for at least 35 years, maybe a little bit more. And I'm not sure what drove me to find him, except that by that point I had written a book, and and my life had gone in the direction of radio and speaking and things. And I, I think in some way he was an influence on me and is to this day. 
uh, without me realizing it fully. And then when I did, I thought, well, this guy was really a, really a pivot uh, player for me. I, I sought him out and I went over to the church and I sat in the back row and I, I actually had gotten a hold of the secretary of the church and asked if he was still you know, running the thing. And she said, yeah, I said, well, I'm going to come over there, but don't, don't tell him. She said, okay, fine. So I go and sit in the back row and there he is up front. At this point, he's got to be 80 and uh, very small crowd, very different than the, the massive, uh, well-lit, uh, highly illuminated Irving Park Presbyterian Church that I remember him from with the, with the spiral and the high ceilings. This is almost like a small, um, flat-ceilinged amphitheater he was in. But he didn't care. He was up there just delivering the frickin' mail and still pounding the podium a little bit and still getting worked up with his robes. He didn't have any white shoes on anymore, but he had his robes on. And he finishes up, and they're all singing. And kind of the, the thing was with the Presbyterians, you know, there's a final hymn, and he got finished doing his thing, and they start singing the hymn, and then he does a couple things, and he walks off while they're still singing. It's kind of the whole pomp and circumstance. So he comes walking down the aisle, and I'm sitting in the back row, and they're singing away, and he stops at the, at the pew, and he looks at me and goes, about time you got back into church. <laughs> he was quite a character. We had a good talk after that. I sat in his office for about an hour, and you know, we, we caught up on a lot of things, and he had his pipe, and you know, he was just the embodiment of basically like TR and Santa Claus and every good human you've ever run into, this, this, this gregarious, outgoing man of faith who felt called to his ministry when he was picking cotton in Alabama in the 1940s. And uh, he said one day he just felt a literal tap on his shoulder and the Almighty said, Bob, you need to preach. And Bob preached, that's for sure. So great memories around him. And the concept of prayer that's come up over the last few weeks with um, all the interesting, and I'm using this as just a, the best word I can come up with, the inst- interesting examples of where prayer has been applied in the last few weeks. So Damar Hamlin uh, basically dies on a football field and they bring him back and millions of people that don't even know this guy are praying for him. And he recovers. It's a freaking miracle. Or not. Maybe it just wasn't his time to go. And on the opposite side of that, uh, Lisa Marie Presley has cardiac arrest as well at 54 years old, and she does not make it. And in between, there's a lot of different, you know, I've been watching the headlines. Where, where does prayer apply? And people are praying for this. People are praying to end gun violence. And so it comes to me that it's sometimes easy to apply or kind of, how do I say this, to offload our burdens into some unseen deity as opposed to doing things ourselves. So to pray for the end of gun violence is a very noble thing. Has it worked? So if they're waiting for some intercession from, you know, the Lord Almighty to come in and melt all the guns in the world, apparently that's not on his agenda or her agenda. And so where does prayer work and where does it not? I don't have an answer. These are the questions that roll around in my head. And so on one hand, as I said, Damar Hamlin drops, there's silence, they're, they're on a knee, they're praying, and they're praying in ESPN, and people are praying all over the world for this kid. And he makes a, quote, miraculous recovery. Of course, right person, right time, the assistant trainer was there to revive him, the right crew was on the field to get him to the hospital, the right doctors were there. And I am sure, I am sure that someone who is not famous also had a heart attack at some point, dropped like a sack of potatoes, had cardiac arrest, was given CPR and put on an ambulance and got to the hospital and didn't make it. So 
it's always been a quagmire for me. And personally, you know, I, this is like the debate has no answer. If you are someone who fervently believes that prayer is all, be all, ends all, then no evidence is needed for that. If you're someone who is more like me, where I'm kind of like, I don't really understand all of these pieces, and maybe I'm not supposed to, so I just do what works for me, then more evidence is needed. And every time the evidence is presented, I also kind of hit that, that wall a little bit. So I was thinking about all of that, and, and the only time I can really recall in my entire life, I mean, there's pr- times where, listen, my daughter's just passed the second anniversary of her second kidney transplant. There's a lot of prayers going on in there. Now, maybe just the terminology that is a little bit challenging for me to kind of understand at times, but of course the good energy putting out thoughts as her father for that this goes well, but not demanding that the Almighty heal her. I don't, I don't see that as like the way to go for me. The best prayers sometimes are just thank you and let me understand that which I can't understand. And that's how I kind of go about it. But I'm just fascinated as we pull back because if prayer really worked across the board, then Putin wouldn't be alive, would he? All the mothers that lost their sons in that war praying for the end of it hasn't happened. So it's very selective, I guess. And that's where I always run into this because it seems to be, you know, if it works for you, then it's it's the gospel, no pun intended. And if it doesn't, then it must be God's will. So which one is it? Maybe it's both. Maybe it's not an and or thing. Maybe it's a this and that thing. And I think about um, this little article that uh, I came across this uh, short piece that Mary Schmeek wrote last week, who uh, was a longtime uh, columnist for the Chicago Tribune, uh, but now she is, uh, like so many, uh, regulated to some greater or lesser degree to, uh, to the landfill of Facebook. And she wrote this, thank you for your prayers. Or if the word prayer makes you itch, then thank you for your good wishes, your strong thoughts, your good vibes, whatever you call it. I'm deeply grateful to all of you who have written recently to wish my mother well during her recent medical emergencies and to share your stories of tending to elderly parents or being one. My mother's hanging in there, getting brighter by the day, and I enjoy thinking it's partly because she felt the encouragement from all those Tribune readers back in the day. This is a a, a column that was previously posted. I'm just using it for this uh, uh, purpose today here on the podcast. Uh, The day before she went into surgery, I told her she had lots of people in Chicago praying for her. Oh, please thank them for me, she said. I used the word praying with her, even though it wasn't the word used by everyone who was kind enough to write. And it's not a word that I use a lot, but my mother prays often in a very deep way, rich and open-minded religious experience that she has. And I sensed that prayer was the word that would be best communicate the goodwill that was sent towards her. Illness and prayer often go together. Even people who don't ordinarily pray in a a traditional denominational way find themselves doing something that looks a lot like prayer when they or someone they care about is ill. People uncomfortable with the word, though, reach for synonyms. Tell your mom I'm rooting for her, said a friend. Does rooting mean praying, I asked, knowing that praying would feel like a hair shirt on his agnostic mind. Cub fans, by the way, know that rooting is indeed praying. Some readers sent poems in lieu of prayers. One by Rumi is called The Guest House, and it goes like this. This being human is a guest house. Every morning is a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. 
If one function of prayer is solace, then a poem like that qualifies as prayer. And here is the Wikipedia definition of prayer. The act of attempting to communicate commonly with a sequence of words with a deity or spirit for the purpose of worshiping, requesting guidance, requesting assistance, confessing sins as an act of reparation or to express one's thoughts and emotions. Secularly, the term can also be used as an alternative to hope. Whether or not we officially pray, most of us have some prayer-like way to express hope and ask for help, some way of reaching outside of ourselves or inside to summon strength, acceptance, insight, and all the qualities that let us endure the difficult, say thanks for the pleasures and root for the well-being of ourselves and others. That act, whatever we call it, involves some connection, some communion, that which is unseen. I think she hit the nail on the head. She explained it as best as I could try to explain it. She's a great writer. That's why that works. And so for me, that's what comes down to this. And look, on one hand, this is really like a non-issue. I'm not here to say who's right and wrong about how you pray or don't pray. If you go to church, you don't go to church. It's just so interesting to me how it's very selective that God is good when Damar Hamlin recovers. But the immense suffering that goes in the world when preyed upon often continues. And so it's so easy, I think, to make it fit our own dimensions, the concept of prayer, that somehow praying for one person uh, and they, they survive is good and someone that you pray for doesn't somehow makes it like, well, then it's just God's will. Isn't it all God's will? I mean, that's how I ask these questions in my mind. And so the one time I remember many, many, many years ago when my daughter first was diagnosed with her, her kidney challenge, um, I was uh, teaching high school and I had to have, I didn't have insurance. My wife at the time had insurance, but I needed to have insurance as well, just a backup. And I remember uh, the only way I was going to get that insurance is I've, I was assigned to this particular school uh, as what's called a cadre. So I'm like a permanent substitute. I can cover different classes and I needed that. I was working part-time doing something else. I thought about going into teaching and this was like the step into that. So I went back and uh, I was familiar with a lot of the teachers, educators, and staff that were there at the time. And, uh, the paperwork was put in. I had to run it down to the Board of Ed, and I dropped it off, and they said, just give us a few minutes, and we'll, we'll consider this, or whatever the deal was. And I remember going into the washroom and literally in a stall, getting down on one knee. It is the only time outside of church that I could recall that I got on, on my knee and said, I need this, to whatever was listening. At that point, it was the urinal, and I'm not kidding. I was in a stall on one knee, saying, I need this to happen so these other things can happen. And it was like a spontaneous move on my part. I sure didn't plan to go, I'm going to go to the bathroom and pray. It was very spontaneous. And it was approved. And I did not, however, associate the prayer that I had next to the urinal with the result. It just was like all of a sudden, it's like, well, what if that was already happening anyway? And the chances are that it was. I don't know that that was in sort of divine intercession on, on the Almighty's part to have me get this job so the other things could follow. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It's all how we look at it, I suppose. And all the years since then, in the difficult spots with myself, with my family, with my friends, people I care about, and even a guy like Damar Hamlin, who I've never met, never probably will meet, but there's that part of the human family that begs that attention. It's always been that the prayer of just let things go the way that they need to go and give me the opportunity and the insight to understand them as best I can, no matter what happens. I mean, because I don't, can't see directing the architect of the universe and bending that to make my life somehow better. 
in a way that that it's prescribed that you see a lot of this stuff on TV. If you send me a bunch of money, somehow you will have God's favor, which I think is just, that's a whole different show. So I guess as I'm getting ready to close this one up today, I've said a lot, but I don't know if I've said anything worth listening to, <laughs> quite frankly. But it's just so interesting to me because it pops up again and again and again. People praying for a field goal to be made, probably because they're going to make or lose some money. And they're at the very same moment, somebody's at the bedside of a child who's dying and praying and it doesn't change a thing. So it's just so interesting to me, this concept. I, I, what I ought to do is get some experts on. You know, I, I have a couple of friends of mine that uh, are, are um, ordained at different faiths and to see what they have to say about it. Because to me, it's like this overarching thing. Uh, it's, it's just very fascinating to me. And I saw it again this morning as uh, they were, there was another shooting in Chicago, which is a daily occurrence. And there was a group of people on the corner you know, praying for the violence to end, as I kind of alluded to at the beginning of this rant. And it's not worked. And so to me, things that we can do as human beings that we don't do and, and, and kind of push that off to this unseen deity to take care of is uh, not faithful in my part. It is, um, it's a lack of faith. And there are things that we're here to do that if we don't do, shouldn't be God's job, in my opinion, observation, and experience. Adding to the list of Lisa Marie Presley and uh, Robbie Knievel, Evil Knievel's kid who passed away, is Robbie Bachman. And Robbie Bachman was the drummer for Bachman Turner Overdrive. So uh, I just wanted to say Godspeed. Uh, thanks for all the years on the skins and uh, putting that drive and beat together for BTO. And um, that's the prayer. Godspeed for me. Thanks for being here. At some point, we're all checking out. We've all checked in. If you've checked in, you're checking out. It's bottom line. And I guess how you live the dash from the date you got here to the date you leave, uh, to me, that is everything. It's, it's a wide open opportunity every day. And it's difficult to drag too much of yesterday into today because you end up ruining tomorrow. The one prayer, however, that has always stuck with me among all ones that I've come across in the decades that I've been around and digging through books and, and so much of the stuff that fascinates me is this one, and I will leave you with it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one that I can, and the wisdom to know that it's me. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. <laughs>